You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, use me as your instrument now, but do not forsake me. For if ever I should be on my own, I would easily wreck it all. I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we have a lot to reflect on tonight, so if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, turn to Matthew 28.16 in your Bibles. Or in your pew Bible, if you don't have one, it's page 835. Page 835 to Matthew chapter 28. It'll be helpful to have open because in just a moment I'm going to reference some of the other verses in the chapter so you can get a context, get a sense of the context and where we are. Well, for several weeks now, if you've been here, you know this. We've devoted time to reading in the service and to preaching from a good portion of Matthew's gospel. And tonight we arrive at the ending of Matthew, the famous Great Commission. And you probably have heard of this before, and you probably know that it has often been quoted to summon the church to missionary activity throughout the world. But since we are probably so familiar with the Great Commission already, it's easy for us to assume that we already have the gist of what the passage is talking about. It would be a mistake for us to assume tonight that tonight is a Foreign Missions Sunday for us, though God certainly might be calling some of you to more foreign missions. It would be a mistake to assume that Jesus is simply calling us to more short-term trips overseas, though perhaps he might be calling some of you to do more short-term trips overseas. It would also be a mistake to assume that Jesus is calling us Christians out of the world in which we live, work, and play to get busy for Jesus. It would be a mistake to hear the Great Commission and to think that it is calling us to be the saviors of the world since there is only one Savior and Lord to whom we bear witness. And it would be a mistake to hear this passage as Jesus calling us to amp up our spiritual and religious activity with no bearing on the rest of our lives. We need to be able to hear Matthew 28 again with fresh ears. Please do not misunderstand me. Jesus is calling us to be disciples, and he is calling us as his disciples out into mission. But it is not merely a mission of evangelism or Bible studies. Nor is it merely a mission of church volunteer work, social justice, or helping people with their spirituality. When we take the Great Commission that way, we can easily domesticate Christianity into our culture and our evangelism practices or our Bible studies or our social justice, but we can co-opt those into our lives as it already is. We might think that Jesus is calling us out of our ordinary lives to get busy doing spiritual stuff. But the Bible is much more down to earth than that. The Bible tells us the story of God and his creation. It tells us the story of us humans with real bodies and real relationships. 
and it tells us of the conclusion that God has written for our human story. God is not asking you to leave behind your ordinary work for private religious activity. God is rescuing this world that is under the power of sin, capital S, and its partner, death, capital D. From the beginning of his story, Matthew has been calling for repentance and faith in Jesus. And he is now concluding his story in such a way that he is now cranking up the issue to the max. He is now pressing us for absolute decision. He is calling for all of us, including us Christians, to repent and believe in Jesus. He is now placing before our very eyes the Son of God, and he is calling for allegiance to him and to him alone. The crucified and the resurrected Jesus is now calling you and me to absolute allegiance to his lordship. When the resurrected Jesus encounters you and when he encounters me, he turns your world upside down. He undoes your priorities. He places a question mark over your whole way of existence. He is not asking for us to accommodate him into one aspect of our lives. He's not asking for us to have a private relationship with Jesus. He is calling for us to surrender our whole lives to him, to be citizens of his kingdom, to be his disciples in all of life, both our private lives and our public lives. This is because when Jesus encounters you, he makes a claim on your whole life. This is what it means to repent and believe. Here's the point of Matthew 28. Are you ready for it? Jesus is calling you and me to follow him. He is calling for us to be followers of Jesus. You might also put it this way. Jesus is calling us into lifelong relationship with him. But what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? Well, there's much we could say about that. If following Jesus is a lifelong relationship, we can't really get at the whole thing in 20 minutes anyway, and and that's why we gather each Sunday to rehearse the story of the gospel. And so we should always expect for Jesus in our lifelong relationship with him to always be shining light into the darkest places of our lives. But to keep things simple tonight, I think we can say that there are at least two characteristics that we can see from Matthew 28. Two characteristics of following Jesus. So number one, first, to be Jesus' disciple, well, that means to worship Jesus as Lord. So now have your Bible, you, you already turned in your Bibles, hopefully, but now have your Bibles handy so you can now see the context of where we are. Matthew 28, this whole chapter, is a sandwich with the top and the bottom being the two slices of bread. And the report of the guards there in the middle, well, that's the inside of the sandwich. In the first part of the chapter, in the top slice of bread, in the first part of the chapter, we have heard the jaw-dropping news that Jesus has been raised from the dead. This is, of course, the news we celebrated last week on Easter, that Jesus has been victorious over death itself. But now look at verse 9. Jesus meets the two women. He greets them. And what happens when they see Jesus? Their response immediately is what? To worship him. 
They showed him reverence and honor, not just as a special person, but as God himself who has now defeated death. When they see Jesus, they respond in humility and worship and honor. They acknowledge him to be the Lord. Now skip down and look at verse 16, our passage for tonight. The bottom slice of bread. Matthew reports how he directs the disciples to the mountain. And then verse 17 tells us what? When they see Jesus. When they see Jesus, they worshipped him. Now it does say that some of them doubted and we're not quite sure what this word means. It could mean a variety of things. Maybe they weren't quite sure what to make of it. They may have been of a mixed mind or were hesitant in some way. Um, But the main point that we can see from the women in the top slice of bread and here in the bottom, Matthew is showing us that the right reaction to Jesus' resurrection is to worship him as the Lord. The one true God has now made himself known in Jesus' death and resurrection. But Matthew has done something ingenious. He's not just shown us that the right answer is to worship Jesus as the Lord. He's not just given us the bread. He's given us the inside of the sandwich too. Scholars have noticed how Matthew is kind of like Daniel and the book of Revelation. And all these books, Daniel, Revelation, and Matthew, these books were written to a minority group of believers who were suffering under a governmental power. So for the book of Daniel, they were probably living in captivity in Babylon. And for the original readers of Matthew and Revelation, well, the threat was the Roman Empire. The group of believers, well, they were a minority group, and they were in a hopeless situation. So these books were written to these believers to stir hope in this hopeless situation. And these books... Daniel, Matthew, Revelation, they are letting us know that God's kingdom is certain no matter the circumstances. And they are also doing something else. They are unmasking this present evil age. They are unmasking the Roman Empire for what it truly is. It is showing us that these are kingdoms of evil, even though they look really pretty on the outside. For example, if you've ever dared to try to read and study Revelation, if you ever come across the weird kind of imagery like the great prostitute and the beast, well, it's using this vivid, odd imagery to get at the point that this present evil age, it is evil. It's unmasking it for what it truly is. And Matthew is doing something like that here. So remember, we have the top and the bottom, and it is calling for a right reaction to Jesus, worship. But now let me read the middle, verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. It's like a House of Cards episode. Sheer evil and corruption. A tale of lies, power, money, bribery in the face of the truth. 
the religious leaders and the political leaders and the soldiers, all of them together have become agents of evil. They are all together working in this web of deception in order to maintain power, refusing to the bitter end to acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord of history. We've actually seen this before in chapter 2. You probably know the story. When the wise men come to worship Jesus, the baby, they tell Herod the king that they want to worship him, yet Herod could not stand the thought of submitting to Jesus as Lord. And so what does he do? He has children murdered to save himself. Power, corruption, murder. Matthew is unmasking this present evil age. He is calling it out for what it truly is. And all that to say this. Here at the end, Matthew is posing us with a choice. Deny Jesus' resurrection or worship him as the divine king? Disciples of evil who are on the side of death or disciples of Jesus who are on the side of life? Against the backdrop of this present evil age, Matthew is calling us to remain with Jesus. If that is the call to discipleship in Matthew's day, the question for us is, What is Matthew's call to discipleship in our present day in the 21st century for us postmodern Americans? Well, back in January, Lauren Paul, who is the wife of the actor Aaron Paul from Breaking Bad, she posted something on Instagram where she asked questions about the meaning of life and death. Here's what she had to say in the caption. But what if there's nothing after this? What if you live this life and that's it? The idea of that has never sat well with me, but today I'm exploring the nothing, trying to find beauty in that too. The most recent issue of a new philosopher magazine that I recently picked up at Barnes & Noble, it's all about answering a similar question. On the front of the cover is this topic, what is the meaning of life? A lot of smart people submit answers to that question. Some of them say love or learning to die or being kind to people. But after you skim the whole issue, you kind of get the sense that most everyone is sort of living in a hopeless situation. And we really think that death is all there is. And that is the end of the story. There was a recent New Yorker article that I recently came across. It's called The Case for Not Being Born. In that article, Joshua Rothman writes this about a South African philosopher. He says this, David Benatar may be the world's most pessimistic philosopher. He believes that life is so bad, so painful, that human beings should stop having children for reasons of compassion. I asked Benatar why the proper response to his arguments wasn't to strive to make the world a better place. He told me a dramatically improved world is impossible. It'll never happen. Unpleasantness and suffering are too deeply written into the structure of life to be eliminated. His voice grew more urgent. His eyes teared up. We're asked to accept what is unacceptable, and it's unacceptable that people and other beings have to go through what they go through, and there's almost nothing that they can do about it. In an ordinary conversation... I would have murmured something reassuring, but in this case, 
I didn't know what to say. End quote. The thought of hopelessness and death is not just for bookish academic types. You and I also have to reckon with the same thing. You and I are disciples of this culture. If you're a parent of teenagers, ask your teenagers what they think about life or ask them what their fellow students and friends are talking about at school. Get into discussions with people around town. Listen to the lyrics of new music coming out. Read some articles. Our culture is telling us more and more that this world is a bleak and hopeless place. We're often told that God is distant or that he might not exist altogether. Is Lauren Paul right? Is there really no meaning to life? Is it so hopeless that we should stop having children? This is the world that shapes you and me. We are disciples naturally of this culture. So what does it look like for the resurrected Jesus to encounter you and me and our neighbors? What does Matthew's call to worship sound like to us in 21st century America? Jesus announces that he has won, that he is the victor, and he announces a promise to you and to me. Look at verse 18 now in your Bibles. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The end of verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus comes to you and to me in love, and he announces that he is the victor over sin, capital S, and death, capital D. Jesus has taken death and hopelessness down to the hellish dump it deserves, and he emerges as the resurrected and ascended Lord. He has conquered this present evil age, and he now announces that he has authority over all things. The one who was crucified for you and for me, he is the Lord And he has not left us to fend for ourselves. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And nothing, not even death or hopelessness itself, can undo that. Jesus now lives to triumph. People of God, Jesus has been raised. So have faith in him, have hope in him. To be a disciple of Jesus in this 21st century world is to always look to Jesus in hope, knowing that he alone is the author of our stories. This is what it means to worship him. We are to be a people of hope, and a people of hope live differently in this hopeless age, which takes us to our second point. So number one, to be a disciple of Jesus is to worship Jesus as the Lord. But point two, to be Jesus' disciple means to move outward in service to the world. So now look at verse 19, the famous verse. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus has called you and me to a totally new identity, to be his disciples rather than the disciples of this hopeless age. And he now commissions us as his disciples to make more disciples. 
The main verb of this sentence is make disciples. And it basically means this. As you and I are following Jesus, as you and I are remaining with Jesus, well, that implies that we too are inviting others to follow along with us. We are inviting others to remain with Jesus. We are calling others to be the students of our one teacher and Lord. And since Jesus is Lord over all things, there is no limit to his gospel and there is no limit to his call to discipleship. Unlike what is sometimes assumed and said in popular culture, the gospel is not the message that belongs to white Anglo-Saxon persons. It is good news for every person on this planet, every man, woman, child, every ethnicity, every race, every nationality. Church of the Advent, Jesus Christ has called you to be his disciples, and he has called you outward to make more disciples In fact, we recently said this in our vision process. We said that we are a church with a living, daring confidence in God's grace, and as such, we exist to proclaim the freeing power of the gospel and to make disciples. He is calling you and me into lifelong relationship with himself, and he has called us to learn the Jesus way in this hopeless age. To be a disciple is not some higher special Christian calling. It is not the task for just a few of us. Jesus has called all of us here in this room to be his disciples and together make more disciples. It's not a task reserved for Matt or Andrew or me or Zach. It's not just for the clergy or the paid staff. It's for all of you. We are all together as disciples to be disciples and to make disciples. And if being a disciple means learning from everything that Jesus has to say, if it means a totally identity change, then that certainly must mean that there is no sphere of life that is off limits to Jesus' call to discipleship. Because sin pervades every aspect of your life and my life, well, there's no part of our lives that remain unchanged when Jesus meets us. And so he has called us to bear witness to him in all of life. He has called us as a church to be an alternative society in this hopeless age. He is concerned for your whole self, not just your private life, not just your religious life. Don't mistake the Great Commission as some calling to some higher spiritual activity. He wants your whole self, your mind, your body, your soul. Are you an accountant, a lawyer, a student? An artist, a retailer, a doctor? Jesus isn't asking you to give up on those things. He rescues you in order to send you back out into the world. For you artists, ask yourself, what does it mean for me to do art now that I have met the resurrected Jesus? Or for you lawyers, what does it mean to practice law and uphold justice now that I have met the resurrected Jesus? Jesus. We're going to have to wrestle with those questions in detail, but one thing is certain. Our work will be different because we are disciples of Jesus. Discipleship is not a flight out of the world. Jesus sends us back into his creation. May I read a quote, a longer quote from the Anglican pastor and theologian John Stott? Here's what he has to say. Jesus Christ calls all his disciples to ministry. 
that is to service. He himself is the servant par excellence, and he calls us to be servants too. This much is certain. If we are Christians, we must spend our lives in the service of God and others. The only difference between us lies in the nature of the service we are called to render. Some are indeed called to be missionaries, evangelists, or pastors, and others to the great professions of law, education, medicine, and the social sciences. But others are called to commerce, industry, farming, to accountancy and banking, to government, and to the mass media, or to homemaking or family building. In all these spheres and many others, it is possible for Christians to interpret their work Christianly and to see it neither as a necessary evil just for living, nor even as a useful place in which to evangelize or make money, but as their Christian vocation, as the way Christ has called them to spend their lives in his service. A part of their calling will be to maintain Christ's standards of justice, righteousness, honesty, dignity, and compassion in a society that no longer accepts them. This is what it means to be a disciple of our resurrected Lord and to be a disciple-maker of Jesus. He calls you to worship him, and he then sends you back out into the world to work for the common good, which will, of course, include telling others about Jesus. Disciples of Jesus care about Jesus' creation, and disciples of Jesus care about other human beings made in his image. Since we are called to be hopeful people, hopeful disciples, we're called to go and engage in the darkest territories of our city and our world. Maybe some of you will get together and you will spot an unreached part of Birmingham and you will get together to go actively engage our neighbors there with the hope of the gospel. Maybe some of you will organize a Bible study over at the firehouse shelter. Or maybe some of you lawyers will get together and think, what does it mean to practice law, to work for the other person's good in our city? These are only a few examples and maybe not even the best. But remember, Jesus is calling us to discipleship, and there is no limit to the discipleship that he calls us to. He is the Lord of all. And when our neighbors ask, what makes you people tick? We will tell them the reason for the hope that is within us. We are ambassadors of the resurrected Jesus. The whole basis for our worship, the whole basis for our service to the world, is from beginning to end the gospel. Jesus is for you, and he is with you. So now, Church of the Advent, let me end with permission. Go bear witness to Jesus in all of life, and tell your friends and your neighbors how the Lord has had mercy on you. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.